Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Uh, I am Cindy House, the host of this podcast. I am here with Lizzie No. Hi, Lizzie. Hi there, Cindy. Today on the pod, we have Leon Timbo, which we are very excited about. Extremely excited about. He is like a literal dreamboat. I've never met him in my life. I have met him. You met him in real life? Yes. The first time that I met Leon Timbo, he was at the Black Opry House, the very first Black Opry House at Americana Fest in Nashville. This man picked up my Gibson guitar, Denzel, and he got on his knees and played his song, 10,000 Songs. I couldn't breathe. Such was the power of this man's songwriting and his voice. And it was like in the summer, I feel like everyone was kind of sweating. It was just like Mm. being around the campfire, basically, with like a great bard. It was phenomenal. And I have been hooked on his voice ever since. What an icon. Before we get into talking about Leon, um, we'd love for you to sign up for our monthly newsletter, which like, hopefully I've been able to maintain because, man, lots of stuff is happening. What's happening, Cindy? Well, uh, when this recording will be released, I will be on my honeymoon. <gasps> Woo! Congrats. No, no, no. You say best wishes. Well, wait. Can we talk about the etiquette of wedding compliments? Because I feel like we need to really queer the space of weddings because I have heard, mm-hmm. according to like Emily Post that you say congratulations to the groom and best wishes to the bride so as not to imply that the bride is in some way lucky for having snagged a man because even Emily Post knew that like men are not the prize. But now what do you do when it's two ladies? Can I just say that people can say congratulations to me for snagging my wife? Because holy shit. I know, what a catch, dude. What she a is, catch. Man, I... You can say congratulations to me. Okay, I we've cleared it up. And I would also congratulate Elizabeth because you, Cindy, are a catch. Even the catch. Oh, stop. Oh, ha, ha, catch ha. of a lifetime. Uh, okay, uh, wait. So sign up for our newsletter at basicfolk.com. Um, you can also follow us on social media at basicfolkpod. Also, we're a listener-supported operation Uh, And I am broke because I just paid for my wedding. Um, So if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so. uh, And you'll have access to our bonus episodes, which are located on the website backstage, and information on how you can contribute in whatever amount at basicfolk.com slash donate. Um, Before we got on, we were talking about uh, exercise and running plateaus and personal trainers. Yeah, I have just had a victory that I want to share with the group. I just did my first 10-mile run in a very, very long time, like in many months. Wow. Yeah, it was hard, and I'm really proud of myself. Sometimes you need, like I took a weekend in nature. I went upstate with some of my friends, and it helped me push through that little plateau where you're like around six miles, and you just like cannot seem to make yourself run for more than an hour. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm out in nature. I'm listening to the birds. Let's go. Were you listening to any music or anything like that? I do love to commune with the pop girlies. I'm really into 
Rina Sawayama right now. She's phenomenal. Mm. She's so good. And she's a fashion icon as well. But I have to complain. Spotify offline is a myth. You know that thing where they're like, download your songs and then you can get on a plane and you'll still have everything on your phone. That is a lie. Only about three songs saved. And so I just kept listening to those on repeat. So that was a bummer. But it did kind of force me to listen to the sounds of nature, listen to the sounds of my breathing. And Mm -hmm. all of this is leading towards my journey to enlightenment. If you get to listen to three songs over and over again, you really get to like sit down and dig into those songs. Yeah. In um, preparing for my wedding, I was like listening to our processional song, like basically nonstop and the recessional song. I've actually been running to that. I've been running to your one of we talked about this on one of the bonus episodes, which subscribers can listen to. Uh, Cindy revealed one of the songs that's going to be part of her wedding and I've been running to it, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to spoil what it is. Just like listening to them over and over again and then putting them in this like really meaningful moment in my life has like really allowed me to like sit in the meaning of the song for me. Wow. You know, like when we process the song is sort of like a promise of, of hope and then while we recess, it's like, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but we're going to have a lot of fun. And there's like, I don't know if I'm making sense. You absolutely are. I'm just sitting in silence feeling very emotional. Oh, I, I kept saying to Elizabeth, who is my now wife. Hello. Uh, like we, need to get, we need to get some tissues. And she went to the store and she was like, I didn't get any tissues because they didn't have any cute ones. <laughs> One of the things about Elizabeth is she doesn't compromise on quality and luxury. The reason that we're such a good pair is that I'm like, let's go, let's go, let's get it done, let's get it done. And she's like, well, I didn't get it done because they didn't have any pretty tissues. Yeah. I also wanted to mention in preparation for my wedding, I've been trying to like getting into shape. And I feel like I really have gotten there. Um, I've been using a personal trainer for like a year and a half in Pittsburgh and uh, they do virtual sessions if anyone's interested um, so the gym's name is Free Will so it's like Free Will Pittsburgh and the trainer is Donnie uh, their name is Donnell Levi Donovan and they are the owner and the trainer and just a fantastic person really great accountability partner very kind of like low-key, like a chill, anxious person, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And what I really like about working out with Donnie is, I mean, there's so much that I like working about with Donnie, but one of the things is that they let me, like, hook into their Bluetooth speaker so that I get to, like, listen to my own music. And Donnie is also a musician, so we'll be, like, working out. They'll be like, okay, grab the 12-pound weights, and then all of a sudden they'll be like, I don't know if I like this song. And I'll say, yeah, I don't like it either. You know, so like we're like half talking about music, half working out, which I like it. You know, I like to be like distracted when I'm working out. So like I don't even realize that it's happening. That's so important. And I have to say for our listeners who can't see you, Cindy, right now, you look phenomenal. And Mm. that is a testament to your free will power. I'm trying to I'm trying to plug your gym while I compliment you. Speaking of. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a testament to your trainer. So everyone go hit up Donnie. Yeah, and not a paid advertisement, just to sort of Nope. Say thanks, Donnie, for being my workout buddy. And they will continue to be my workout buddy. Aw. Willis has just arrived. Willis, Willis has entered the chat. He just busted in. What's the matter? Oh my gosh, he's Did he just miss me? He's so beautiful. You gonna lay down? Congrats. Willis, Willis is a dog. In case this is your first episode of Basic Folk, um, Willis is a majestic dog. Wow, what's he up to over there? He's sniffing your desk. He's, he wants to, yeah. Did you hear that? I did hear that. He does love to be under the desk. Yep. He <laughs> likes, um, I think, like, animals like to be, like, contained. Mm-hmm. You know, like Dottie sits in her cat carrier because there's like a ceiling and Willis lays under the dining room table because he likes to, you know, it's really funny is that Willis has his spots in the house and Dottie's like, oh, I will try this spot as well. And then all of a sudden it becomes Dottie's spot. Oh, man. 
Bummer. Assert yourself, Willis. I want to talk about the TV that you've been watching. Oh, I've been watching Severance. And I know I'm sort of late to the party on this. I am finding it so good and really thought-provoking as far as, like, what it's saying maybe about consciousness. Like, I am very... I've always been very into dreams and, like, the fluidity between waking and dreaming life. And Severance is a really good show to watch if you're into that sort of thing. Mm. Um, And also, if you're into that sort of thing, please see me after class because I need more people who are willing to talk about their dreams and intuitions with me. The show that I have just recently finished watching, and I don't recommend it. <laughs> we are getting a disrecommendation, an anti-endorsement here on Basic Folk. It's called The Staircase. It's it's um, that like true crime series that's based on the documentary of um, Michael Michael Peterson. Oh, I thought this was about that guy that perhaps killed his wife, perhaps not. Right, yeah, no, that's it. In oh, okay. Durham, North Carolina. Yes. So his name is Michael Peterson, his wife who was killed, Kathleen Peterson. And it's like she falls down the stairs and or or she was murdered, we don't know. Like uh but it, it's just like Tony Collette is Kathleen, Colin Firth is Michael oh. Peterson, which is like he does Colin Firth does an amazing job. Like it's a really wonderful piece of television. Like it's really wonderful television, but like I hated watching it because it made me like it's first of all, it's like very graphic. They show her dying probably like five times. No, thank you. You know, because they're like, here's what could have happened. This also could have happened. This also could have happened. And this and but it's like over the series of um a matter of weeks and stuff. Everybody does a great job acting, but I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is so dark. The show that I would recommend though, like a great palate cleanser for any TV show or this conversation um, (laughs) to watch is a show called Ghosts, which I think was first on the BBC, but you can get it on HBO Max. Um, And it's about this couple who inherits this like giant Downton Abbey style house in England. Must be nice. Charlotte Ritchie is one of the leads and she's also in call the midwife oh fun. And she's like um so anyways the couple um inherits this mansion and there are ghosts in the mansion that only she can see and hear <sighs> being a woman is very tiring <laughs> funny um all right let's talk about leon t let's um let me set the scene When Leon Timbo was a teenager, growing up in Florida, he prayed to God for a singing voice. He was a young poet. He was the child of a preacher. So he already had that bug to tell stories and connect with people. But his dream was to be able to sing. And his remarkable artistic journey, which we talk about on the pod, is basically the answer to that prayer. Like, basically, his wish was granted. He's a phenomenal singer, and it was hard to imagine him not always being that way. Um, He started in his 20s writing and performing songs. He had these really clever DIY tours where he would package merch to make sure he always was, like, making a living. Like, he was a businessman and an artist from the very beginning. Um, Ooh, that's a really rare combo, I think. Yeah. We, I was so fascinated to hear about, like, his strategy from the very beginning when it came to, like, his songwriting as a business. So he did these DIY solo tours, little by little expanding his reach from Florida outward across the country. And his focus was on connecting with each audience member and building a loyal following. And it worked. So on one of these DIY tours... Um, the actor, musician, producer, and famously extremely handsome person, Tyrese Gibson, fell in love with Leon's music and went backstage and said, like, whatever just happened here tonight, I want to happen at my show. Will you open for me? So Tyrese became a mentor 
and helped Leon hone his sound and open these massive doors of opportunity um, in the music world. He has like incredible stories, like performing with the Fisk Jubilee singers, hanging out at a bar with Quincy Jones. Like he is just a well of incredible stories about the industry. Um, But more importantly, his journey is basically guided by faith, spirituality, you know, the power of storytelling and his belief that it matters that we connect with one another as human beings. So he has this unique take on Americana, which is infused with like R&B, gospel, rock, folk, like all these genres. Um, And I think people are going to love his new album. It's called Lovers and Fools Volume 2. It's a vehicle for his hopeful worldview and, of course, his spectacular voice. That album is actually out now, and we're going to hear a song from that release before we get into the chat. Let's hear Let Me Go from Leon Timbo, and then we'll get to a conversation between Leon and Lizzie No on Basic Folk. Get in that space. I'll be going crazy Tired of the same Same old feeling Like I'm losing my friend Baby, I hurt you Say yeah. Truth is, I hurt you, yeah. Even when I so excited to be here with Leon Timbo. Welcome to the show. What's going on, sis? How are you? I am doing well. How are you? I am doing well. I'm excited to be sharing this interview with you as well. Okay, let's start at the very beginning, which is where I like to start. We're going to get to your new album, but I want to go way, 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 way back. Tell me about Mm, your upbringing. You were a Florida kid. What was your upbringing like? What was your family like? Well, I um, there were two dynamics to my life. Um, I'm a preacher's kid. My family grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. My, my dad was a pastor. Prior to that, he was like a minister in church, and I was like the bad, the bad church kid. And so, oh, really? oh absolutely. I, I for as many times as I got whippings, I should have a name on some pews. But <laughs> um, so on one end, you had him, my mom. And then on the other hand, you had like my aunties, uncles and cousins. So my dad tend to make a lot of um, a lot of good moves, you know, in the 80s. You know, he was out of the military and worked for the telephone company. And then he started. So we had we were kind of sort of well off, but I never really stayed a lot at my home. I I would always get sent to my cousins because I guess to make that kind of money, you had to be busy. And so I was always sent with my cousins. And that was I mean, just to keep it a book, they had no money. They didn't have a lot of anything. And so I found myself kind of in this dichotomy of experiences. So that was my upbringing. Music didn't come into play until much later for me. Um, I think I was just a poet and I used to be like the chubby kid that used to like read Cosmopolitan magazine to make all the older... Because if you if you knew if you knew ten ways to make your man happy, you know it it made sense. So were you buying your own issues of Cosmo? No, my aunt. My I would just take. The, I had an aunt that that was a uh, she was a beautician, and so you know you would get magazine subscriptions, and I was like, hey, I think this works. You know, if I read something really intellectual, they may not like me because I'm the chubby guy, but if I said something nice, I get close enough, and it, it usually worked. Oh my gosh, so you learned to be a charmer from reading ladies' it's magazines. Oh my terrible. gosh. 
That's a hot That's tip true. for any young children that may be listening. If you want, <laughs> if you want to grow up to be a successful and socially integrated adult, read Cosmo. Um, do you? What music do you remember hearing around the house when you were young? Honestly, because of that dichotomy, I found myself in like the onset of the Jesus People movement. You know, um, in the in the eighties, and then can you explain a little bit sleep- what that is? Sure. So all the hippies of the 60s became parents and they found the Lord. <laughs> and <laughs> once they found the Lord, they kept their long hair and their culture, but then kind of made it more of a religious setting. And I'm the child of said types of parents. So that's what that was. That's a very that's like a very interesting road into being a folk musician. Absolutely, because I found myself in the center of gospel music because Mm -hmm. of my faith. So I'm right in the center of gospel music, but I never really quite fit because, um, number one, I didn't sing well um, or didn't sing at all. And then number two, it wasn't until later that I found my favorite instrument is the guitar. And there wasn't a lot of references for that when I was, you know, coming along reading my Cosmo magazines. And so once I really saw James Taylor and um, uh, Bill Withers and... Mm -hmm. Uh, John John Denver, I was like, wait a minute, I think I get this. You could take poetry and actually set it to simple music and people feel what you're doing and it's honest and it's raw and you don't have to be perfect because every story is perfect because it's your story. And so it's just that really intrigued me growing up and that's how I evolved. Oh, I love that. You are really like born to be a singer songwriter. I think some people Mm. come to it as like they wanted to start a band with their friends or you know, they started out as a vocalist and each road in to becoming a musician, I think is so interesting. And your story is, like you said, your story is perfect because it's your story. That's really interesting. And and I'm an only child. So the solitude, I think most musicians, you can't really be a musician and not be a loner on some level because it takes that to build a craft. It takes some a long time, some solitude, a little bit of depression to actually, you know, home a craft and so absolutely i think it was the it was the transparency of that in folk music that really drew me oh you i can tell my stories this way i can see the world through this lens and it really moved me so i've read that you started singing at 16 and it i mean it baffles me to hear you say that as a kid you didn't sing or you didn't sing well because for any of our listeners that may be just getting introduced to your music. Leon has one of the most remarkable voices in folk and Americana right now. I mean, your your voice is a knockout. So it sounds like that was like, did that come as a surprise to you? How did you get started as a singer? You know, being, my, my faith kind of gave me some unique spiritual experiences. And when I was 16, kind of dealing with my own identity, I remember praying. I was told if you want something from God, you pray about it. So I'll, nobody nobody said that it was wrong to pray for the ability to sing. And so I remember going to my bathroom and saying, okay, I don't know where you are or what you are or how this moves, but I really feel like I want to sing and nobody really gets it. My family isn't musical. My space isn't musical, but this is something I want. And I started pursuing it and I realized that what goes on for me is that I hear a song in my head And it's difficult for me to actually sing it the way that I hear it. Um, Like the the tone deaf. I mean, we all have friends who who do that. And so (laughs) I I did that, but, but I knew I was doing it and I didn't understand how to make it right. And so I started making practices of, you know, meeting what I heard in my head and what I sung out loud. And the guitar is really what kind of took it over the hill for me, because by hearing the notes on the guitar, I found my my sound. And I told, I was like, I want to sound like Marvin Gaye. I want to sound like Luther Vandross. I was telling God everything. I'm like, okay, if you're, if you're big and bad, I got, I got one for you. (laughs) Oh my God. Well, he came through. I, that's, (laughs) I was just about to ask you about picking up the, about when you picked up the guitar. So it sounds like you're saying you found it easier to mimic the notes on guitar versus like singing along to the radio. Like it was easier for you to sing with guitar rather than like try to sing along with other human voices. That's so interesting. I 
I could not sing with other human voices. I could not sing with the radio. I could feel it. I could feel it, but I felt it. I felt the lyrics before I felt the music. Um, and so for me, it was really about what you said and how you said it was a canvas for what you said. Mm-hmm. So the music was like a, a room or a reality you were setting in place so that the words would make sense to the experience. So it's really all about the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So how in the hell did you come, <laughs> come on. to be like a regular collaborator collaborator with the Fisk Jubilee singers? I mean, you have this whole career of like gospel and, and choral settings for someone that self-identified kind of as a loner and who learned to sing in this sort of unconventional way. Like what was the process of learning to sing and listen and harmonize with others? Because choral singing is all about listening more than you sing. I had an amazing teacher, Mark Scott, and I hope he's listening. Uh, it's just middle-aged white guy at the time um, that just believed in me. And so I actually joined maybe my senior year of high school. So I was really late to the party. And he looked at me and said, why are you here? What do you want? And I said, I want to, I want to, I want to feel this. I want to be able to articulate it. And he took time like he did with so many other students in Jacksonville at then Forest High School um, to to give me the encouragement. He even told me, he said, once you're in your 30s, you're never going to realize your real voice. So the beauty is in processing and evolving Mm -hmm. and hearing your mistakes. And so he really he really helped me fire in that direction. Mark J. Scott. Yeah. Oh, can you bring us behind the curtain a little bit and tell us some of the exercises or techniques that he taught you as far as like learning to sing well with others? Oftentimes, um, because I was a loner, I had to discover what voice was my own. Oh, okay. um, and nobody really said this to me, but there's a there's a talking voice and then there's a singing voice. Um, and you, some people's singing voices are completely different than their talking voices. Yes. Um, but there's no class. There was no class to be taught to say there's a moment of self-discovery where you find the voice that fits your heart. Mm-hmm. And I found myself doing that, discovering that. And once I could discover my voice, the next thing was relationship. How does my, my voice sound next to his voice? or next to her voice. More so, how can my voice complement his voice or her voice? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went into most, you know, choral contexts. Um, I went into those spaces trying to be seen um, but not heard um, so that I could be support to all of the, you know, the rest of the body, the rest of the team, the rest of the uh, chorus. And that's what did it for me. That's what allowed me to kind of have vocal relativity, vocal relationship. It's because I was like, well, I know I can out sing people. I know I can scream, but how do I sing in a way that makes them feel better about what they're singing? And so that, that was my journey. Mm-hmm. Have you always been comfortable performing, whether it's like as a solo artist or with the chorus? Like, did you ever get that classic stage fright thing? Uh, stage fright is inevitable, I think. Um, but to answer the first part of your question, I think um, I've always been a bit of an, a performer. I think socially, being an only child, the only way you're going to get attention as an only child is you um, you you do something really well or you do something really terrible. Yeah. And so either way, <laughs> either way is set in performance. Like value, attention is set around performing. And so when I realized that as a kid. If I want people to see me, I need to mess something up or I need to make everything better. It kind of gives you a practice, a rhythm to kind of you know do this in life. So that part was always with me, um, how to read a room, how to know when to shut up, know when somebody else wants you to listen. Like, I want your advice. They'll say, I want your advice, but they really don't. You got to know, you know, so those things. Um, and because I was an only kid and I only had friends and seasons, I knew they would leave. And so it was mm. my best interest to make them love me as much as possible for as long as possible, because I'm going to eventually have to transition. So a bit of that taught me how to perform. Do you ever feel like your um, your dad being a pastor like influences how you show up on stage? 
Do you ever have moments where you're like, oh my gosh, that's like totally how my dad would, you know, share with the crowd? Absolutely. Um, my, my dad was, um, he, he wanted to make sure the person heard what he said. And he wanted to make sure that um, him being intelligent, him doing the study that he did was one part of it, but it doesn't matter if it bottlenecks into a space that someone couldn't really apply to their lives. Mm -hmm. And so in seeing him really pursue that, you know, kind of serving people Mm -hmm. in that way, I I kind of saw the benefits of that kind of attitude and I wanted it for myself. So I've read that around age 20 is when you picked up the guitar and started really pursuing Mm -hmm. the singer songwriter life. I'm super mm-hmm. curious about what those early days were like. Like, did you have a full set worth of original material? Were you playing cafes? Like, can you just like paint a picture of those early touring days where you're like basically so fresh and new as a as an artist and you're like hitting the road, bringing your stuff? Well, it starts it starts in your hometown. And for me, um, it was there were two gay guys that embraced me when nobody else would. It was in uh, right in downtown Jacksonville. It was a spot called Boomtown. And it was like a theater, like a really it's like a musical theater. But I don't know how to explain it, like a poetry room. And so I wrote these songs and I was, you know, in my backyard kind of having these experiences and I didn't know where to perform. And um I went to this restaurant. They had an amazing restaurant and they, they came out and said, well, you could perform here. And I looked around and I was like this church boy and I let you read into all of that. And I found my home mm. in that space. I found love in that space and how appropriate for right now to even say that. But I found um a place of acceptance where there was no acceptance anywhere else. Right. Including church, including my father's church. So um, that really spoke to where where I needed to be, where I belonged. And I started down that road a bit more, but I was doing two, three, four chords, right? Mm -hmm. And I would write these Cosmo driven ideas over these two, three, four chords. And um, they sat there attentive. I didn't have to flip. I didn't have to run. I, I just had to sing the truth. And, um, Yeah, that's when I found my room. Okay, so when did you start, like, touring outside of Florida? Like, when did you kind of, when did you kind of start to branch out? Immediately, because my expectation was, if I, if I got you, I I would, I would, I can keep you. Mm -hmm. So I would take, I would take, uh, gigs for no money. I would show up with enough product to pay my way. And even when the organizations couldn't take care of me, um, the people would by how our relationship, you know, so I got no money from the venue, but I would sell because people fell in love with me and I fell in love with them. And I went home with, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars because I could sell. And I also realized, you know, you sell more than one product you know, you, it, it, it matters. If they'll buy one thing, they'll buy four. Right. So you were selling like CDs, I'm guessing t-shirts. Come on, what was your, you what were your that. early merch offerings? I'd love, I'm, I love getting into this stuff because like as singer songwriters, <laughs> yes, we get into it for the songs, but then we end up basically being like traveling merchandise salesmen. And I'm always First. so curious how other people do their merch. Well, it's, it's packaged packages um, really made um, were a smash for me. Packages were, you know, you would get CDs, you would get T-shirt combinations, you would get mugs or you would get um, just something with me signed on. I even had a quick like photo booth. We would take a picture and I would add that to the product so that it was oh, wow. something unique to them. So it was a lot of... Um, you know, that, and you know, the Polaroid, it was just a regular Polaroid, but I take it and then I like sneak it into this little uh, makeshift journal that we called Acoustic Soul, right? So everything mm-hmm. was Acoustic Soul back then. And so they would <laughs> buy it and it would be personal. And I would leave the table with $60 a person wow. because they were 
it was home and they knew they wouldn't get they they weren't getting into stores. They don't know when I'm coming back. So they need to get it right now. And it mattered. That is brilliant. And I am definitely <laughs> going to steal your idea of the Polaroid for that personal touch. That's genius. Yeah, I would. I remember uh, my mortgage and my car notes. I, I would I would tell um, my team, I would say, well, it, it's going to take me 40 40 packages to pay my mortgage and, and 20 packages to pay my car note. And we started like divvying up payments based on, you know, products. It was, it was a great time. Yeah. That is so fascinating. Um, okay. On to like more grand things. I do love to dig into okay. the merch stuff and the nitty gritty, <laughs> but you took, you kind of took an elevator to the big time. Um, when Tyrese Gibson, like, Quote, unquote, I hate this word discovered, but that's, you know, something like what it was. He heard you singing and things started to take a turn. I want to hear that story in your words. Well, um, I was doing what what I just explained to you for a number of years and it was going well. Um, I didn't necessarily have any radio, any any um, musical on the radio or anything like that. But what I did have was um, just a huge groundswell of support. So I find myself at the Potter's House, which is Bishop T.D. Jake's church. Mm-hmm. And I'm just doing music in that um in that service. And he's doing a movie from what I hear later, but he's also performing at the house of blues that night. And um, I'm on stage and I'm doing what I do, this combination of gospel and life, this combination of my faith stuff and my life stuff. And he, uh, he says to me, he, he gets himself backstage. That's already an ordeal. And then once he gets backstage, he says, I know this is random, but I'm doing a show at the House of Blues tonight. Um, whatever happened here, I would love to happen there with me. And that's how the relationship kicked off. And we were going home, like me and the team, we were at, it was at the end, like the, the, this was supposed to be the big hurrah. And we were like leaving that Sunday evening and we changed all the flights. We changed all the stuff. I bet. To, uh, <laughs> I would too. To make that Listen, happen. if Tyrese approached me and asked me like, <laughs> can you stick around town to like uh, clean my kitchen? I'd be like, yep, I'm changing my flight. <laughs> And because of it, he's put me, you know, that relationship, I, I, David Foster and Quincy Jones and, and so many other amazing producers, um, and, and, uh, Kenny Babyface Edmonds, great songwriters. I just found myself in the center of, and the more successful they are, the more like kids they are when it comes mm. to songwriting. It's this, it's this really tonkatory ish. Uh, appreciation. I know I have 20 Grammys, but I'm only as good as this next line, you know, and it really moved me to see that heart out of those guys. So yeah, man, Tyrese is my bro. And um, it was a great time. That that was a great time. He says it was a great time for him too, but it was definitely a great time for me. Yeah. yeah. Man, I love Babyface too. I mean, nobody knows it, but me is one of my favorite songs. I mean, So, Um, so simply written. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What's Mm -hmm. Quincy Jones like? I'm dying to know. So we were in a bar uh, and, and he was in, he was eating what I understand now to be like little seaweed chips. It was really intriguing to me because he was just eating and relaxing. And I did a song called The Foul. (laughs) It's like seaweed chips. I'm like, bro, where did you get seaweed chips from? And so I'm, I'm singing. um, They asked me to sing a thousand songs. Um, and I sang the song and I can, as I'm singing, I don't really open my eyes, but I could feel, I could feel him humming just kind of this really subtle hum to the space. I never really heard that before. It's almost like different people do different things to connect with the moment that they're in. Mm -hmm. And I was just really moved by as much as he's done, you know, it takes my breath away he still had a moment to listen and not learn from me, but you could tell he was just sensing something new to discover in the moment. Mm -hmm. And that just things like that moments like that move me in terms of how people approach. And that's gotta be what makes him great because you don't get to be Quincy Jones 
and everything that he is without staying curious and staying present mm. and like being ready to hear something new and take in something new. That's so cool to exactly hear. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, that's everything. And um, David Foster was a different experience. Wow. I, you know, I was taken by Babyface to David's house. And um, at that time, Alan Thicke was still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, but Alan Thicke was there. Barbara Streisand was there. And it's like this little thing that they do every year. This was obviously prior to the pandemic, but it's this thing. And so the year prior, let me tell you how just overwhelmingly crazy this was. The year prior, David had um, asked Michael Buble to come in and do a session. And so he said, Kenny, um, you're you're next year. So he brings me into the space and I'm. told this story. I'm like, you're lying. He's like, yeah, it's a, so he said, no pressure. You know, obviously there's pressure. <laughs> and so, and so we sit down and um, after I do my songs, David gets on the, you know, piano. And I remember this was a super embarrassing moment. So he wants to do amazing grace. And I'm like, okay, I do amazing grace. And he starts playing. And then uh, he said, oh, that's too high. And I, I said, no, it's fine. And then this is in true David Foster fashion. He begins playing. And when I get to the high part that I can't sing. (laughs) (laughs) I told you so. Yeah, it was one of those. This is why I'm the producer and you're Celine Dion. You know, it's one of those moments. This is why this is why I do what I do well. So it was it was a great learning experience. That is super funny. Do you feel like you got mentorship in terms of being an artist in terms of being a vocalist, in terms of being a performer, like, wh- how do you think, like, what do you think you'd be up to now if that whole circle of people hadn't lifted you up? Like, how did that impact you and how you thought of your career and how you thought about your songwriting? That's a great question. I think I, I think I see my career looking backwards because in the moment that you're in, um, depending on the day, you may not, you may not see or realize or remember the fruit. But in terms of mentoring, um, where I would be, my father, first of all, taught me how to respect and love people. And and just because a person hears differently doesn't mean they hear wrong. Hmm. Um, just because they're different than you doesn't mean you're right and they're wrong. And that's, I think when it comes to music, um, just because a person has a certain bias that their experience has brought them into, um, that's not wrong or lesser to your experience. Right. And if you are the artist, if you're the server um, in this space, yeah, you're going to get your your stuff off your chest. But if there's not a moment that you're willing to serve that audience something for their palate, for their plate, for their ear, for their heart, um, I think you're missing out on a huge opportunity as an artist um, mm. to speak to what hurts the moment that they're in, you know, mm-hmm. and you can read that, you'll know. And so those guys taught me that they taught me that music it's it's not about what you've done. It's about what you're doing. What you've done is amazing, but what you're doing is important and essential. And the only thing you can contribute to, what would I be doing if I didn't do music? I think I would just be a poet. I would just, I would be a civil rights activist. I would be a poet. I would be, I think that would be my tool. That's still my tool. I just do it melodically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm wondering about um, where each of these different chapters fit in to your vision of your life as a person of faith. Like I'm picturing you know, you're like pretty early on in your career, you you got a chance to work with some of the sparkliest people in like pop and R&B, like yeah. you name it. You know, you're in rooms with Barbara Streisand. Did you ever feel a conflict between that and what you feel called to do as a person of faith? Did you feel like that was just part of the service that you were doing? Or were there moments where you felt like you had to choose between like, I'm Leon, a person who believes in God and has certain values in that zone but i'm also in this like extremely glamorous um like world that that feels disconnected did that ever hit home for you as a conflict you uh i've 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 lived in that tension all my life Mm -hmm. um i think 
I think I've come to accept that tension as something beautiful and not something that needed to be corrected. So if I'm waking up one day, if I'm waking up one day and I'm like, shit, you know, I'm not I'm not feeling less of a person. I'm not feeling like I missed a moment or I missed an opportunity. I'm I'm now examining, okay, as a man, where am I in my faith with this experience? Where am I in my frustration with this experience? And it all contributes to a better version of me. So I think my experiences with people, wherever they are in life, I think my experiences with, um, for instance, my daughter, my oldest daughter, who's gay, taught me how to love in ways I would have never discovered. She, um, she sits me down often and shows me a love that I think it's taken me way too many years to figure out. And mm. so... If I if I let if I let certain antiquated concepts of my faith define where we're evolving into and where we're moving into, I think I think I miss the beauty of mistakes. I miss the mm-hmm. beauty of, you know, figuring it out. I miss the beauty of um discovering the next. As long as love is the origin of my intention, I think I'll always find my way back home, but I don't mind making, taking risks. And Mm -hmm. I think that's the part of this beautiful tension that I live in. Did I help that answer? That is powerful. I'm glad we're recording this because I'm going to listen back um, (laughs) and take some of your lessons to heart. Okay. So that, that's a chapter. I want to talk about the chapter that you're in now, which is your like mm-hmm. Americana songwriter chapter. What does Americana mean to you? Why was it important for you to pivot into this particular genre? I, I feel like it is, it's home for me. Uh, Americana is the, the place that I've had my greatest victories and my greatest defeats. This country is the, is the place that, um, that's birthed the, uh, the 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 best version of my family and the worst version of my family, you know, and roots gospel blues. Um, you talk about the Fisk Jubilee singers. It was in my discovery of my search for identity that I found Americana reaching around all of these spaces and the tension of this country and the tension of, you know. North America, South America, the tension of this space has birthed music expressions for healing and for process, for journeying and for oneness, ultimately for oneness. Um, and I have really recently discovered that oneness is not equal to sameness. Mm. And I think sometimes we tend to feel like one equals the other. I think for, for us to have the same heart, we don't have to have the same road or the same um, room or even the same side of the political tract. I think um, oneness is our ability to massage and give and take with relationship. So Americana is home to all of that for me. Americana is the birthplace of everything that is great in my people. And, you know, as far as this American experience is concerned, I am very American. I am... um, I only know this. I leave this country. I have nowhere to go. That's just that's just my yeah. truth. I can I can I can build a narrative for belonging somewhere else. But the reality is, whatever three, four, five, six generations until I can no longer search my origin, it is all on this soil. And there's beauty in that space, even if it didn't start that way. Yeah, I think it's it's really significant to be an America, uh, you know, an Americana artist and to be a black American. And there are tensions and textures there that we are uniquely positioned to sing about Mm -hmm. and to talk about. That really does bring me back to a thousand songs. I mean, can you tell me about the songwriting process for that song? Because to me, it's like, it's a political song and it's a spiritual song. And it really, it feels like black music to me in that combination of the political, the personal, the hopeful, the hurt. Um, what was the writing process like for that song? You know, I, uh, I, I, I had a, it was, it was an interesting evening of drinks and I, I went to sleep early 
and I woke up to something on the news and it triggered me. And I remember I was, I had, I had no clothes on. I'm not giving you any more details. It was just <laughs> a weird moment in time. And I, I found myself with nothing on my body, but my guitar crying and writing the song. I just, I just wrote what I heard um, from the first verse of seeing this very American um, child um, and seeing the parents and then seeing the tension of that space and seeing the tension of missing fathers who are going off to war or going off fighting battles from a government who's figuring things out. I just begin to see it all, cry for it all, and just write it as fast as I could. And the song itself was written in like 20 minutes, but I feel like it was a real spiritual experience for me. And it sung, it sung itself to me, and I just kind of, let me not screw this up. Let me try to put it down the way that I hear it. And that's that's where it came from. Yeah, that was my first memory of meeting you was back in mm. uh, the f- last fall. Was it 2021 that we met at the mm-hmm. Black Opry House? Mm-hmm. We were all passing around the guitar at this Airbnb. And you like got on your knees and picked up my Gibson and played that song. <laughs> and it took my breath away. I was like texting people like, you have to hear this guy. This song is like... You know, this is like a heal the world type of song. Um, And you have a few of those. I mean, Galaxy comes to mind. Can you Mm. talk about like what being a parent has done for you as a songwriter? Like, do you ever find yourself like, do you find yourself writing directly to your kids and, and, and your hopes for them? I'm a girl dad, which, um, which, which is a bit to say, Women, women have it so difficult in this country, in this world, but specifically mm-hmm. in this country, because um, there's this attitude of uh, weakness as it relates to uh, women who really run it all without being seen most of the times. Mm-hmm. So to have daughters and to, to raise daughters, um, they love you no matter what. They love you no matter how stupid you are, how many crazy <laughs> decisions as a parent you are. I know I know friends whose fathers were gone 90% of their lives, but their memory of them, it's just a 10% that was beautiful and that was enough, you know? And so there's something intris- intrinsically like unique with my relationship with love and with my daughters that, um, that helps to keep me grounded. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it keeps me grounded and it shows me a very earthly form of unconditional that is difficult. And I don't know if I would have known had I not been a girl dad. So that's, so it's easy to write songs to them. Galaxy was actually written by a young man, Alex Marion, that I mentor. And um, when he wrote it, he wrote it from a saying that I put on, um, on, on Instagram. He took a line, I want I love to be like the sun and he wrote it and he came to me and said, um, this is what this is what this meant to me. Wow. And I said, man, I got to I got to record it. And so that's what that was. So love just keeps giving back to me that way. And mm-hmm. I'm grateful for it. What does the concept lovers and fools mean? It's something that's it's a I mean, mm-hmm. you have lovers and fools volume one that's out. Mm-hmm. already it's a really beautiful album and you're revisiting it again on your next album lovers and fools volume two so what's the significance of that phrase for you you know i i think we all fall into one or two categories either you identify the moment that you're in with love or you identify the moment that you're in by hurt Mm. whether it's by your foolishness or the foolishness of someone else. And so it doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter where you've come from. You are either in one, you are either uh, identifying with the lover or you're identifying with the fool. And I think in relationship, you especially sense that um, right now in this season of my life and my heart, I found um, the results of a lot of decisions in relationship that, that I made as the fool. Um, and I did not embrace uh, when I should have been the lover. And so these stories are like just coming out of me. And I just, I've been waiting for Americana all my life. And so when I finally walked in the door, I just had to just kind of get it all out of me at mm-hmm. once. Like 
this is this is what I see. This is how I feel. This is what it is. And um, hurt is beautiful. Um, and no is sometimes the best answer anyone can ever give you. Um, and that's okay. Sometimes saying no um, is better than a yes because it's alleviating you from a road that you would have never been loved on, or it's alleviating mm-hmm. you from a moment that you would have been made a foolish decision about. So for me, lovers and fools is how the world is divided. That yeah. is so fascinating. I have a song on my new record that's not out yet, and the like. The last line of the chorus is that like is thieving and dying in the arms of love, which I feel like we share that worldview where, you know, across the generations, everyone was just kind of trying to make it, trying to find some connection. And we often made a lot of mistakes along the way, you know, and like, and it's about like messing up, but still being, you know, on that love path. I, that resonates so deeply with me. We're playing some shows mm-hmm. together this year. I cannot wait to song swap. I <laughs> songs, song swap and duet. Um, yes. I, I would love to um, ex- explore that because I believe even the foolish parts of our lives contribute to the best version of who we're becoming. Because if we don't, if we don't feel the pain of a moment, we won't know to, address it or we won't know to kind of not ignore it pain allows us the opportunity to adjust and build and become better and it's a beautiful thing it just doesn't feel that way at the time and so yeah yeah, that's 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 what we are americana gives us the ability to not just talk about trucks and horses and, and those things are beautiful and those things are amazing but um, this American experience has so much to offer, and um, I'm grateful that I finally found home. Yeah. Which song on this new record, Lovers and Fools, Volume 2, are you most excited to perform live? Honestly, I think Let Me Go is... Mm-hmm. Um, is, is I'm, I'm excited to perform it live because um, it... It offers the idea that letting go is not uh, a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Letting go is not, it may hurt, it may be painful, um, but it's a beautiful thing. If someone is asking to, to be let go, they're giving you permission to not have to deal with their doubt any longer, yeah. deal with their hurt any longer. So yeah, that's, I'm excited about that. So how do you keep your voice in shape? I mean, that song, Let Me Go, I think I've listened to it 10 or 12 times today alone. And you are all over your vocal range. It's a gorgeous song and it's a real showcase for your voice. How do you keep your voice healthy to sing, do that type of like kind of athletic singing on the road? Listen, well, you know, church has a lot to do with that. Mm-hmm. Um, you you want to you know how to ruin uh, a voice or know the mistakes or the ranges of a voice where you should and shouldn't go, uh, especially black church. Um, so black American church, there's a beauty intention. And so Bill Withers makes a statement that when you sing, um, and you, and you want a moment lyrically to land intention, your voice has to respond in said tension. It all speaks mm-hmm. to that space. And uh, church music does that really well. What do I do? Water and rest. There's really no substitute. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some numbing things that I've had to do over the years, but at the end of the day, and then I've had to embrace some of the weaknesses of my voice. My voice pretty you know, it, it becomes raspy when it's weakened. So I have to embrace that. Okay, this is where I am. This is what it needs. And I and, mm-hmm. and I, I kind of move to that space. So that's what I've done. Well, Roots in Americana is the perfect world to be in if you have a little <laughs> bit of a rasp. I mean, that's I think that's not a small part of my journey into these genres because you can have you can have a pristine sort of like Alison Krauss tone or you can be... You know, you could basically be like the PJ Harvey. Like, there's so many acceptable types of textures of voices that people mm-hmm. love in Americana. You know, Lucinda Williams being a great example. So it's yes. it's kind of strategic to be in Americana. Um, I also wanted to ask you about covers. So 
on Lovers and Fools, Volume 1, you have this gorgeous acoustic cover of You've Got a Friend. And you did a tribute to the great Luther Vandross with Never Too Much. And your covers sound so undeniably like you. And I know that it can be tricky to choose a cover and kind of go about producing and arranging it so that it still sounds like you, but you're still paying tribute to the original song. So how do you approach that? Um, well, I, I, with the, wow, my, my favorite artist of all time in American music and almost period is Ray Charles. Mm-hmm. Ray Charles would sing a soulful song a what they call country and western song mm-hmm. um, Ray Charles would sing um, Seven Spanish Angels and he'll sing um, um, What You Say uh, and it's still Ray Charles and so that that prototype gave me permission to take a James Taylor Carol King piece and still give it some of the nuance that I give my music, mm-hmm. some of the um, factors, some of the home um, factors that I give my music. I have permission to do that. And so with the Luther Vandross piece, it's in the same heart. And I got to say, Black Opry, um, and those, uh, it's like family to me. Those guys really rallied around. It was It was really an idea that Holly... And a couple of them were like jogging out and just kind of threw out in the air. And I took it. I'd like, mm-hmm. wait a minute. This feels like something that's for me. And um, they really helped to kind of steer me in the right direction with that Luther Vandross piece. And um, I kind of I kind of continued and completed it and made it my own. And it's just what what's on the what's on the bones of the song. And for Luther's song, the bones were the verses. Everybody knew the chorus, everybody knew the drive, the groove, but it is a perfect love song. And mm-hmm. so I was able with the Americana kind of broken down folk space to highlight the part of the song that he probably didn't as much. And um, and that was room for me. So I felt like that was what gave me permission to be me in the song. Oh, fascinating. I'm going to listen to it again with that in mind, like really paying attention to the verses. We should also give a loving shout out to Holly G, founder of the Black Opry, who brought us together. She's really making waves. You are going to see Leon Timbo and I on some Black Opry stages this year. So stay tuned. I have one last two part serious question. And then are you willing to do a quick lightning round? Okay, let's go. Okay, so the two-parter is, what does success look like for you on this album release? And what does success look like for you in the long run of your career? Wow. You know, I do have a really uh, accurate answer. Success is being able... I'm going to answer the latter Mm -hmm. before I answer. Success is being able to eat... Um, it is being able to eat what you want, where you want, with who you want, when you want. Success in my career um, is is that it is as as weird as it is. I know a lot of people who are financially well off, but they can't eat what they want, and they can't eat it with who they want, mm-hmm. um, and they can't eat it when they want. And so, success is you know. It has a lot of factors. Specifically with this EP or these albums, my goal is um, to introduce myself to the Americana listener and for us to build a relationship that um, kind of pulls out of me things that I couldn't pull out of me by myself. Mm. And I I hope to bring to the community something that it hadn't had before. Any two things that are alike means one of those two things are irrelevant. And I just feel like there's a, there's a space for me to receive out of this community and to give to it. And I'm a student. So these are just kind of my offerings to the table. And uh, yay, this is me. And um, I can't wait to see what we do together. Incredible. Okay. I, well, I'm really excited for everyone to hear this record. Um, it's out in June. 
Lovers and Fools Part 2. Everyone go back and listen to Lovers and Fools Part 1 as well, because mm. it's a really diverse collection of songs that all still sound just like you. Okay. Thank you so much. The lightning round is basically this. I ask you like five really quick random questions and you don't think too hard. Okay. Just shoot from the hip. Ready? All right. Okay. okay. Who is your favorite superhero? Superman. What is the best snack that you always have to have in the tour van? Reese's Pieces. Who was your first celebrity crush? Sanaa Lathan. She's, she continues to be my celebrity crush. Um, yes. Do you prefer so. jeans or sweatpants? Uh, jeans. What is your favorite Luther Vandross song? Never Too Much. If you could go on a road trip with any musician, living or dead, who would it be? Michael Kiwanaka. Ooh, that's a good answer. Okay, Leon Timbo, you are a fantastic artist. So great to talk with you. I feel like I could have talked with you all day. Thank you so much for being a guest on Basic Folk, and I can't wait for everybody to hear your album. Everyone should listen to the single, Let Me Go. It's so fun. It's so fun. Thank you. Thank you, Lizzie. Okay, I'll see you soon. Okay. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy House. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all our episodes there, wherever you get podcasts. You can search for Basic Folk on the SiriusXM app, or you can go to our website, basicfolk.com. Thanks so much for listening. Tell your friends. We love you. Okay, bye. Bye great i had a dog hair in my mouth